0: Tacky Christmas lights with giant inflatable Santa clauses in the front garden has provoked me to want to squint my eyes and, filled with self-righteous contempt, say things like, how does that point people to Jesus? But recently I've undergone something of a conversion experience and I now realize that actually they both have legitimacy. Both the secular Christmas and the Christian Christmas have validity and, in my view, actually make a lovely partnership. So let me explain how. Well before the birth of Christ, the people of the Mediterranean and also of Northern and Central Europe were marking the middle of winter with a feast, with a celebration. There were some very practical reasons for doing this around the time of the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, midwinter's day, and that was an excellent excuse to stay indoors and keep warm and have a big feast. And in many places, of course, there was barely any daylight, and it was cold, and there was not much to do on the farm, and some of the livestock actually would need to be slaughtered if you didn't have enough feed to keep them alive through to the spring. In northern Europe... Uh, All the fathers and sons of a village would go out into the woods as a big team and they would haul in the biggest log that they could find, the Yule log, uh, perhaps several feet in diameter. And they brought it to the village hall and it would take about 12 days to burn. And in that time, the whole village would hang out together for 12 days, eating and drinking, singing and taking it easy and perhaps Uh, Some other rules were bent a little bit as well, especially if there was mistletoe. And in some places, they brought in a fir tree and they decorated it, perhaps with apples, uh, from which we get the uh, Christmas baubles, apples as a visual reminder that life would soon return in the coming spring. And all of these things, without doubt or question, were connected with the worship of pagan gods and spirits, just as everything had a religious meaning in the ancient world. Around Further south, around the Mediterranean, their midwinter feasts often included elements of indulging children, paying special attention to them and giving them presents. They were, after all, members of society who were usually ignored and excluded. In a sense, then, Christmas was well and truly invented before Jesus was ever born. And for centuries after Jesus was born, Christians didn't even celebrate the birth of Jesus. Uh, There were no holidays or feast days to stop and consider Jesus' birth. However, by about the 4th century... the church realized that this was an omission. Um, But the problem, of course, was that nobody knew on what day of the year, let alone in what year, Jesus was actually born. Historians now figure that Jesus was probably born in the spring, uh, that is, late April or early May, the time that shepherds uh, spend all night out in the flocks with their fields, in the fields, making use of the new spring growth and probably in the year 4 BCE, two years before the uh, the death of King Herod the Great, um, and he died in the year 2 BCE. But without this thinking available to them, the church of the 4th century needed to pick a date on which to celebrate the Feast of the Nativity, also known as Christ's Mass, come to be known as Christmas. And so they chose the 25th of December, We don't know exactly what their reasoning was. Perhaps it was due to the fact that the Roman sun worshippers gathered on that day to worship the sun, seeking its return. Or perhaps it was because uh, the day was already celebrated um, uh, by the worshippers of the Greek god uh, Saturn, uh, the father of all Greek gods, as his birthday. So then, with the Roman Empire becoming increasingly Christian through the influence of Emperor Constantine and beyond, this might have uh, just been kind of intuitively obvious choice. The right day to celebrate the birth of Jesus by way of a Mass, which is to say, by way of a Holy Communion service. Well, that's the 4th century. Let's fast forward about a 1,000 years. Yuletide celebrations continue to be incredibly popular, part of European culture, albeit now a Christendom culture, a world where the teachings of the church are the official religion. Fast forward another 700 years. The European Reformation, the English Reformation, Shakespeare, the English Civil War. Puritans in England ban Christmas, making it illegal and punishing anyone who looks even vaguely happy or festive on that day. Quite right, too. Christmas is unbiblical. There's no mention of Christmas celebrations in the Bible. And, of course, people were using that day to do things they shouldn't do. So, too, in the newly formed and puritanical United States of America, it was illegal to celebrate Christmas. Not only was it unbiblical, it was also distinctly English. But the plain fact of the matter was was that people missed Christmas. In England, at huge risk of oversimplification, but not necessarily of distortion, the people of England brought back the monarchy after uh, the English Civil War, in order to restore their right to have Christmas. And hard-working Americans needed a holiday too, and Christmas crept back in. But it was a celebration that needed meaning. It was primarily about eating and drinking too much, and also in England, it was about one day... Where the, uh, where the locals basically held the local aristocracy to ransom. It was trick-or-treat time. And uh, the local aristocracy had to uh, give them all the best that they had in their larder or suffer some nasty trick. Trick-or-treating, as we now know, was actually invented in England, and it was associated with Christmas, not with All Saints' Eve, that is to say, Halloween. Uh, Enter, a little bit later, enter Charles Dickens, amongst many others. His short story, A Christmas Carol, caused a sensation on both sides of the Atlantic when it was published in the mid-1800s. As you may already know, it's a story about a man named Ebenezer Scrooge, a rich businessman who employs a a clerk named Bob Cratchit. Ebenezer Scrooge is a miser, a man who won't give anything to anyone unless he absolutely has to. He's hard-hearted and hard-headed, and he thinks Christmas is a load of rubbish. Bah humbug, is what he keeps saying. Bob, his bookkeeper, is overpay—sorry, overworked and underpaid. He can't make ends meet, even working a 16-hour day At home, he has cold, inadequately clothed, underfed children. That's not to suggest that something was happening that was illegal. No, it was all perfectly legal. Scrooge had offered these conditions and Cratchit had accepted. But now he can't escape and he can't make do. However, during the night of Christmas Eve, Ebenezer Scrooge has something of a revelation, a conversion experience of sorts. Deeply frightened by the realization of what kind of man he has become, and deeply frightened by the realization of where that was going to take him, he has a complete change of heart. He wakes up on Christmas morning a changed man. He makes big donations to charity. He sends food to Bob's family. And from then on, he works for their welfare, increasing Bob's pay, as well as taking a real interest in his own relatives and their children. And Ebenezer Scrooge thereafter comes to embody something newly articulated, the secular spirit of Christmas, which is to act with kindness, generosity, and compassion. This idea captured the imagination of the English-speaking world and gave Christmas now a real meaning. One factory owner in America, having attended a public reading of the book, announced, next year I will close the factory on Christmas Day. So... Do you know why Santa Claus looks the way he looks? I mean, I don't mean his clothes, um, the red suit with the white trimmings. Most people know that story. He's dressed in Coca-Cola's colors. That's true, by the way. But do you know why Santa Claus is old, fat, short, with a long white beard and round glasses? Well, actually, he was consciously modeled on the 19th century American robber barons. A robber baron was the term used in the 1800s in uh, America for those ultra-wealthy factory owners who became obscenely rich by employing poor people at miserable rates. They robbed the poor in order to become rich. Santa Claus is a robber baron in reverse. He, he is rich, but he gives To the poor, to the poor and vulnerable, to children. And who is this guy, Santa Claus, who is he named after? Does anybody know? St. Nicholas, Santa Claus. Um, uh, St. Nicholas, um, Nicholas of Bari, Bishop of Myra in modern-day Turkey, Bishop there in the early 300s A.D., Not much is known about him, but there's stories about him giving money to poor people, to children especially. Gold coins dropped in bags down the chimney, or perhaps gold coins dropped into stockings as they were hanging out uh, to dry on the washing line, in order that in one particular instance, four poor girls now had dowries so that they could marry and escape the terrible despair of poverty. Back again to the 1800s, in both America and England, Protestants noticed that Catholics went to church on Christmas Day. But they didn't. Protestants don't celebrate Christmas. It's a secular pagan festival. But Protestants actually wanted to go to church, so Protestant churches began doing Christmas services too. And Christian Christmas was revived. It was reinvented. What shall we do when we get there to church on Christmas Day? Well, we'll, let's read the nativity narratives from Matthew and Luke's Gospels and let's stop to consider the incarnation. The incarnation, the the doctrine, the the understanding, the, the teaching that God became human in and through the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And for us as Christians, actually, that's a really good thing to do because it is wonderful. God finally and fully and perfectly revealed himself to a world that argues endlessly about what he is like and even occasionally doubts that he exists at all. But there he is, and in a form we can all understand. And it is wonderful. Uh, By that I mean, when I say it is wonderful, I mean you and I, we could spend our whole lives wondering about this, thinking about the incarnation, studying it, teaching it, without ever really making any progress in mapping out this vast territory of profound universe-changing truth. Because of the events of that first Christmas day, the entire universe is different. Creator. Creator. And creation, utterly distinct categories, totally different, yet united now in a person, in history and also in prospect, never to be separated again. And Jesus shows us exactly what God is like. And in doing so, Jesus shows us exactly what it means to be a human being. Jesus is... The friend, the king, the lord, the counselor, the guide, and the savior that we need. And on the cross, Jesus did something for us that only he could do, and we needed him to do it. He was without sin, and so he was able to save us from sin. By his stripes, we are healed, by his blood, we are forgiven. By his name, we have access to the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the sure promise of eternal life. And all of this came to us. All of this came to us in the first instance in the form of a child, a baby. As uh, Phil Sparrow says, kid born in shed saves world. As Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus is a present of unspeakable worth, of unimaginable value, thus Christian Christmas needs no defense or reinventing. It is eternally good news of great joy for all people. So now what what I've done is I've charted the history of both secular or pagan Christmas as well as church or religious or Christian Christmas. How is it that I can now say that they make a lovely partnership? Well what they both have in common is clear. They are both about the radical redistribution of wealth. The true spirit of Christmas, however you figure it, spiritually or materially or both, is about the radical redistribution of wealth. And by radical, uh, you might be thinking, well, that's a word that has to be included in every sermon. Uh, But uh, by radical, I mean... um, um, Rule-breaking, paradigm-shifting, a a new and fundamental change, something that breaks the old rules. The radical redistribution of wealth. And my exhortation this Christmas is that we take this message to heart and apply it as creatively as we can. Um, in, in, In my own extended family... We have decided that adults will no longer give Christmas presents uh, to adults. We all understand, really, in one way or another, I think we all understand that Christmas is no longer meaningfully represented by us exchanging stuff that either we don't want or that we'd simply buy for ourselves anyway by way of the next available sale. We still give uh, gifts, of course, to the youngest generation. But then again, in our age, where for many families, children are able to pretty much get what they want or need, when they want or need it, perhaps there needs to be some creative re-engineering here too. You might uh, consider, for example, a gift like uh, this one, uh, now popular with many aid and development agencies, um, a gift where your money uh, goes to purchase something really useful for somebody truly in need, such as this uh, piglet. You can send a piglet to someone. And in addition to getting annual progress reports from your piglet and a photo of your piglet for the fridge so you can pray for it, you might be able to go and visit your piglet and form a lasting friendship with it. So that's a joke, just so you know. But what we should avoid is the radical redistribution of wealth such that we borrow money from the banks at terrible interest rates in order to give the money to Kmart or Big W, who in turn give only just enough of it to factory workers in China and Taiwan so as to keep them bound in deplorable conditions from which they cannot meaningfully escape. And although when we think of poverty, our minds might naturally and usefully turn to Africa or Asia, we we shouldn't... lose sight of the fact that here in Australia, and perhaps even more so in Britain and in America, there are people who work an 80-hour week and still can't afford to pay their rent or make ends meet. And that's not to suggest that something uh, illegal is happening, Free market forces, liberal capitalism, etc., etc. But the point is, even in societies that work carefully at crafting just policies and laws, there will always still be distinctions and discrepancies that aren't actually loving. Even if somehow, economically, they are just. Um, The film uh, Sorry We Missed You, um, which I'm looking forward to seeing. I think it opens tomorrow in Perth. The, the British film Sorry We Missed You um, is, is just about this kind of situation today and about how the zero-hours contract is creating a new serfdom in England today. Uh, Bob Critchetts, who are trapped in huge working hours yet can't actually meet their own financial needs. So, so I guess we, we need Christmas more than ever, and we need both of them. They're both about the radical redistribution of wealth because Christmas is about grace, kindness, compassion, and mercy. It's about treating everybody with the same dignity, given that God himself was pleased to be found in human form, just the same as us, just like us, as one of us, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. Amen.